0: Over the past 20 years, I've devoted much of my scholarly energy to thinking about and trying to exemplify the practice of interpreting scripture theologically. Now, on the one hand, this may seem like an obvious and even a natural task. Even before Luke's Gospel is concluded, the resurrected Christ is interpreting scripture for his two followers on the way to Emmaus so that they may come to understand all that happened to him was spoken of in the scriptures. And then a few verses later, we read that they're all gathered in Jerusalem, and the resurrected Christ appears to them, opening their minds so they can understand the scriptures. Thus, from the very earliest days of what would become the church, Christians have been interpreting scripture in the light of our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. On the other hand, over the past 250 years, the practice of biblical interpretation and the work of theology have been moving ever further and further apart. They now represent two distinct academic disciplines. In my tradition, and perhaps in yours too, nobody feels this separation more keenly than seminarians. I serve as dean of examining chaplains for our diocese, and that's an incredibly impressive title for what's a pretty mundane job. And in this role, one of my tasks is to look over the general ordination exams from all the seminarians from our diocese. The exams cover seven areas, two of which are scripture and theology. Year in and year out, no matter what the questions are, when students answer the scripture questions, they employ, with varying degrees of success and sophistication, the methods of professional biblical studies. That's not surprising. They were taught by professional biblical scholars the better students will tack on some theological comments which are really more like personal sentiments than anything else. The theology essays will deploy with varying degrees of success and sophistication the methods of professional theologians. Again, no surprise here. Although they might make reference to our Book of Common Prayer in their essays, they rarely invoke scripture in any way. Although this is disappointing to me and to our bishops, it's not surprising. Seminary education in our denomination, as in most of the ones I know, though I suspect from what I've gathered here that you don't fit the norm quite so much, which is good. Um, It's, uh, sorry, seminary education, at least in my denomination and the ones I know best, reflect the same sorts of professional and disciplinary divisions that mark the graduate programs where the faculty were trained. Of course, this isn't merely an abstract and academic problem. These same seminarians go on to serve churches where they preach, often weekly, where they're required to both think and think theologically and to help their congregations think theologically in the light of the various circumstances in which they find themselves. For the most part, the training these folks received in seminary did not prepare them well for these tasks. To the extent that they're successful and faithful in their ministries, it's almost despite rather than because of their training. There is a growing number of scholars though, both inside and outside seminaries, who find this separation between professional biblical studies on the one hand and theologians on the other hand, ultimately detrimental to both parties. There are all sorts of institutional and curricular changes that can be made to improve this situation. I'm not about to suggest any to you. Um, They're important, but the most significant thing we can do to help bridge this gap between theology and professional biblical studies, and to renew the church and the way it prepares its ministers is to reinvigorate the practices associated with interpreting scripture theologically. And I want to spend my time here reflecting on this further and offering some suggestions for how to begin to reinvigorate theological interpretation. So let me give you a brief roadmap of where I'm going and um, by stating some of my most important conclusions in advance of actually arguing for them. First, as we think theologically about Scripture it's crucial that our account of Revelation is subsidiary to and originates from our understanding of God's triune identity. Second, in interpreting Scripture theologically it's crucial that theological concerns remain primary. More precisely, it's crucial that theology regulates any theories of meaning and interpretation we might want to employ rather than letting hermeneutics regulate theology. Third, the reinvigoration of theological interpretation will require us to have a number of other practices in good working order. As will become clear, these practices are not ever more sophisticated exegetical methods. Rather, their practice is essential to the proper working of the body of Christ. Now, I must confess this last conclusion will remain a bit underdeveloped, but I hope to say more about this in my uh, sectional paper this afternoon. It seems like a good idea, then, to begin a discussion of theological interpretation of Scripture by thinking theologically about Scripture itself. This is because how and what Christians think about Scripture will influence the ways in which Christians might interpret Scripture theologically. Now, of course, it's not always clear how to separate theological thinking about Scripture from theological interpretation of Scripture, since much theological thinking about Scripture is closely connected to Christian views of God, the world, and God's relations with the world, that are themselves drawn in various ways from Scripture. Am I not loud enough here? There we go. Okay. Um, I'll say that sentence again. Uh, Of course, it's not always clear how to separate theological thinking about scripture from theological interpretation of scripture, since much theological thinking about scripture is closely connected to Christian views of God, the world, and God's relations with the world that are themselves drawn in various ways from scripture. As origins On First Principles and Augustine's On Christian Teaching indicate, these issues were traditionally treated together from early on in the Church's life. And it's not my aim to separate what belongs together conceptually and theologically. I'm just, rather, I'm simply treating these as two distinct topics for the sake of organizational clarity. So, initially then, I want to begin by thinking about Scripture in theological terms. Most modern attempts to address the place and status of scripture begin by asking what sort of book scripture is. On the one hand, modern historical studies have made it all too clear that scripture is a human work. The original texts which comprise the Bible were written by a variety of human authors, known and unknown, in diverse historical, linguistic and cultural settings. Both the human authors of these texts and those who preserved, edited, and ordered these texts participated in and were subject to a host of social, material, and institutional forces which undoubtedly affected the composition of the Bible even if scholars are not altogether sure how and to what extent this happened. On the other hand, Christians are committed to the notion that Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture is the standard against which Christian faith and practice are to measure up. In my tradition we say that scripture contains all things necessary for salvation and its authority is indubitable. I gather you all say it is the word of God, infallible and inerrant. Those last two terms can be a bit tricky and I'm sure that you all had some lively discussions about these over the years and I'm just going to leave them there undisturbed for the time being. If one begins by focusing on Scripture's status as both the Word of God and the work of human hands, it seems quite natural to extend a Christological analogy to Scripture in order to account for its status as both divine and human writing. That is, in ways that are analogous to the confession that Christ has two natures, human and divine, Scripture is taken to be both human and divine. Although this might seem like a natural connection to draw, and in fact, we learned this morning that somebody actually drew it, though not the first, I don't think, um, it's not. Although there are some pre-modern theologians who deploy a Christological analogy to account for various ways in which Scripture might function, the use of this Christological analogy to account for Scripture's status is actually quite modern. In this modern context, it's relatively common to find scholars applying a a sort of Christological analogy to scripture in order to justify the practices of modern biblical criticism. Here's how the argument works. First, scripture's human historical status is thought to necessitate a wide variety of practices commonly known as historical criticism. That is, because the Bible is a human book, it should be subject to the same interpretive practices and standards as any other ancient text. Failure to employ historical criticism becomes an implicit denial that scripture is really the work of human hands, a sort of docetism. Given these concerns, it makes sense that the interpretive practices and theories of biblical scholars should be accessible to all regardless of one's disposition to the claims of Judaism or Christianity. Should an interpreter be a Jew or a Christian, Those convictions need to be abstracted as much as possible from one's interpretive work as a biblical scholar. This is the way the profession operates. Failure to do this is to lapse into a sort of docetism. Once this move is made, however, biblical interpretation becomes an end in itself or at least has this strong tendency to become an end in itself whose goal is either the unearthing or the construction of textual meaning. Upon deciding to treat the Bible as a human historical text to be read like any other, the remaining issue for theologians and Christians more generally is how to treat the Bible as the word of God. Once interpreting the Bible as a human book becomes its own end, the question is how to move from the results of that work to either theological claims or to the moral and ascetical formation of Christians or to any other edifying practice which Christians have traditionally based on Scripture. One approach to this problem of how to treat the Bible as the Word of God after already treating it as the work of human hands attempted to distill the timeless truths of Scripture from the historical particularities of the biblical texts and those texts' production. The so-called biblical theology movement represents the most recent form of this attempt and such attempts rarely stand the test of time. It's usually just a matter of a few years before any given proposal about a unique or timeless scriptural theme is shown to have some sort of cultural or temporal antecedent. Indeed, once scholars adopted the Christological analogy as a justification for reading the Bible like any other book, it became evident that critical scholarly activity would seek to fit the texts of the Bible into their historical and cultural milieu without remainder. This leaves little of theological interest or usefulness on which to build. This is precisely the problem reflected in the general ordination exams that I look at and the problems faced by seminarians and pastors more broadly. The failures Of theological approaches to Scripture that primarily operate with this Christological analogy suggests that one should try an alternative starting point. In his work Holy Scripture, a Dogmatic Sketch, John Webster points out that doctrines about Scripture must begin with and depend upon doctrines about the Triune God. The Christian God is the Trinity whose inner life is reflected in the gracious and peaceful self-giving and self-communication of Father, Son and Spirit. In creating all things, the triune God freely wills not simply the existence of humans created in the image of God, but God also desires fellowship with humans, offering them a share in the divine life, as 2 Peter 1:4 indicates. This is both the intention with which God created and the end which God created. Given this, God's self-presentation or self-communication is an essential element in establishing and maintaining that fellowship that God freely desires to have with humans. That is, we could not on our own discern or reason our way to knowledge and love or fellowship with God apart from God initially communicating to us. Thus, God's self-revelation to humans is both the source and the content of a Christian doctrine of revelation. Revelation is directly dependent upon God's triune being and is inseparable from God's freely-willed desire for loving communion with humans. In this light, the written text of scripture is subsidiary to and dependent upon a notion of revelation that is itself directly dependent on God's triune being. Now that's Webster's argument, an argument I agree with, and incidentally it is also the position um, that Vatican II takes. Webster is an Anglican, very Reformed theologian, and um, that, uh, Vatican II obviously is a Roman Catholic doctrine, but this fits very precisely with what uh, they say as well. This recognition of revelation being dependent upon the doctrine of the Trinity recalibrates the relationships between God, scripture, and Christians in several interesting ways. For Christians, the ends of reading, interpreting, and embodying scripture are determined decisively by the ends of God's self-revelation, which are directed towards drawing humans into ever deeper communion with the triune God and with each other. In this way, scriptural interpretation is not an end in itself for Christians. One might even say that scripture itself indicates that the mediation of revelation through written scripture is not God's best desire for believers, but a contingent response to human sinfulness. Recall that God speaks with Adam and Eve with an unbroken intimacy and immediacy. This is also reflected in the description of God's interactions with Moses, speaking as as with a friend face-to-face in Exodus 33. Further, Jeremiah 31 indicates that the written covenant will ultimately be replaced by a covenant written on the heart, so that teaching, remembering, and interpreting scripture will be a thing of the past. In addition, when confronted with Moses' permission of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus makes it quite clear that there is a gap between God's best intentions for humans, as revealed in Genesis 1 and 2, and the scriptural words of Moses, which are offered as a concession to human sinfulness. In their various ways, all these scriptural texts indicate that scripture is the result of God's condescension to human sinfulness. At the same time, scripture reveals God's best hopes and desires for the world, our sinful betrayal of those desires, and the mystery of God's reconciling all things in Christ. Thus, although the interpretation and embodiment of Scripture is not an end in itself, as Christians engage Scripture for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, they can confidently advance toward their proper ends in God, proficient and equipped for every good work. That's a gloss on 2 Timothy 3, a passage you probably know pretty well. Until God's law is written on our hearts after the manner of Jeremiah 31, Scripture is a sufficient means for revealing the triune God to sinful humans. Another avenue which opens up when Christians think of Scripture in the light of their convictions about the triune God is in relation to the history and processes of the formation of Scripture. An emphasis on Scripture's dual nature will obviously recognize that the text of Scripture as we know it today is tied to a variety of historical, political, and social processes. Scholars may disagree about the nature of those processes, but it's hard to deny that a variety of forces, known and not known, shaped and were shaped by the text of scripture. This recognition becomes difficult to square with a doctrine of revelation if that doctrine is divorced from its subsidiary role in relation to the doctrine of God. As Webster argues, Just such a divorce occurred in the history of modern theology. Rather than a doctrinal assertion related to God's triune identity, theologians came to think of revelation as an epistemological category, requiring philosophical rather than theological justification. Now I'm quoting from Webster here. Understood in this dogmatically minimalistic way, language about revelation became a way of talking not about the life giving and loving presence of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit's power among the worshiping and witnessing assembly, but instead of an arcane process of causality whereby persons acquire knowledge through opaque, non natural operations. Once one moves in this direction, it becomes easier to understand why some attempts to defend the divine nature of Scripture tend to focus all their attention on establishing either the incorruptibility of the text or the entirely benign nature of the processes by which the texts of scripture come to us. Even though scholars know much less about the processes which shape the final form of scripture than we're willing to admit, it's indubitable that every stage of this process was fully historical and fully human. Thus, If an epistemologically rather than theologically focused doctrine of revelation persists, it really becomes impossible for the Christological analogy of scripture's dual nature to hold. It would seem that at this particular point, the divine and human natures of scripture simply cannot coexist. Both naturalism and supernaturalism are trapped in a competitive understanding of the transcendent and the historical. Alternatively, following Webster, I've suggested that we should view Revelation as the triune God's self-communication to God's own creation. Revelation then flows from the very nature of the Trinity as the peaceable and mutual self-giving of Father, Son, and Spirit. This revelation is not simply a making God known to humanity. It's an activity that is graciously directed towards drawing humanity into ever deeper communion with God and each other. In the light of this notion of revelation, one can be more relaxed in approaching and analyzing the human processes that led to the formation of scripture. This is because the triune God is not simply the content of revelation, but one would also have to presume that God also directs and sustains the revelation of God's very self with the aim of drawing humanity into ever deeper fellowship. Anything less than this will entail views of God that are much closer to deism than Christianity. In short, once one recognizes that God's revelation is ultimately directed towards bringing about our salvation, one is thereby committed to the view, or to a view, of God's providential ordering of history so that God's ends will ultimately be achieved. In this way, Christians can fully recognize the human processes, whatever they may have been, that led to scripture's formation. At the same time their conviction about God's providence should lead them to understand that however scripture came to look the way it does scripture reveals all that believers need to sustain a life of growing communion with God and each other in this respect I think Christians would do well to take on the disposition displayed by Paul in Philippians one12 12 12-18 in this passage the imprisoned Paul begins by noting that contrary to what one might expect, the gospel has advanced, even in the midst of his imprisonment. Indeed, Paul's adoption of the passive voice here makes it clear that God and not Paul is the agent advancing the gospel. Paul then goes on to note that many believers in Rome have become bold in proclaiming the gospel. Paul further observes that among these newly emboldened preachers, some preach from good motives and Others preach from selfish motives. After commenting on each of these groups, Paul surprisingly goes on to announce that no matter what the motives of these preachers, Christ is being proclaimed and Paul rejoices in this. The motives of the preachers, while important, seem secondary to the act of proclamation. Now, it may appear that Paul pragmatically prefers to see the gospel preached than to wait until everybody's motives are pure. I don't think Paul sees the choice quite that way. Ultimately, Paul is convinced that God is directing both his personal circumstances and the more general spread of the gospel. Thus, he need not be overly concerned about the motives of any particular set of preachers. Paul is able to see in the midst of his own circumstances that despite appearances and contrary to expectations, God is advancing the gospel. Rather than expressing a preference for preaching from selfish motives over no preaching at all, this phrase is an expression of faith in God's providential oversight of the gospel's progress. From a theological perspective, it's important to note that a very particular doctrine of providence underwrites Paul's account here. Paul is confident, as he says in 1.6, that God will bring the good work started in his own and in the Philippians' lives to its proper completion. Paul's view of God's providence leads him to fit himself and his various circumstances into a larger, ongoing story of God's unfolding economy of salvation. Within this larger context, and only within this context, Paul's circumstances can be seen as advancing the gospel. This view of providence enables Paul to rejoice even in the face of a gospel proclaimed from selfish motives. This is because the advance of the gospel is subject to the larger ends of God's economy of salvation. If this disposition is extended to scripture, Christians can both recognize the vicissitudes in the historical formation of scripture and still treat scripture as God's providentially ordered self-revelation. Now, obviously one cannot sustain any notion of God's providence, apart from a fairly robust notion of the spirit's role in various aspects of Scripture's formation. One's initial thinking about this should start from the role Jesus anticipates for the Spirit in the lives of those who will come to produce Scripture, as he presents it in John's Gospel. The Spirit is the one who calls to mind all that Jesus taught. That's John 14, 6. John also promises that the Spirit will lead his followers into all truth, a truth that they simply could not bear on that side of the crucifixion and resurrection. It's uh, John 16, 2 to 15. In addition, the Spirit will guide and direct the disciples concerning what is to come so that they can continue to abide in Christ, in John 15one to 11. In remembering the past words of Christ, leading and confirming the disciples in all truth, And speaking about the things yet to come, the Spirit's role in the lives of believers, and thus in the production of Scripture, is comprehensive. The Spirit's work in the operation of God's providential ordering of things sanctifies the means and the processes which lead to the production of Scripture, turning them to God's holy purposes without diminishing their human historical character. Thus, in calling Scripture holy, Christians are not making a comprehensive claim about the purity of the motives of the writers and editors of Scripture. These may well have been decidedly unholy. Even in the face of such unholy motives and actions, Christians are committed to the belief that the triune God has revealed a passionate desire to have fellowship with humanity, even in the light of our manifest sin. Scripture is chief among God's providentially ordered gifts directed to bringing about reconciliation and fellowship with God despite human sin. Thus scripture is holy because of its divinely willed role in making us holy. I noted before that when the Bible is treated just like any other ancient text then biblical interpretation becomes an end in itself. Although I will argue that such approaches can generate much that might be of interpretive value for Christians, it will leave them with a theologically deficient account of scripture. In contrast to this, I've argued that scripture needs to be understood in the light of a doctrine of revelation that is itself subsidiary to doctrines about the triune God and God's desires for us. This claim has presumed what I take to be the relatively uncontroversial assertion that the end or the telos of the Christian life is ever deeper communion with God and each other. Now, although various Christian groups characterize this in terms of, say, friendship with God, as Thomas Aquinas does, or theosis, as Eastern Orthodox do, or glorifying God and enjoying God forever, in the words of the Westminster Confession, or simply using the word salvation, Christians all recognize that at the least, ever deeper communion with God and neighbor suitably characterizes God's purposes for humanity. So my point here is that I'm sure that you all have a specific way of talking about this and a specific form of words, but I think that all the Christian groups across the broad spectrum um, share in some version of this notion, even if they use different words to describe it. If these convictions govern Christian thinking about Scripture and the Christian life, then Christians will come to see that they are called to interpret, debate, pray over, and embody Scripture as a way of advancing toward their true end of ever deeper fellowship with God and each other. To use an image that St. Augustine first employed in On Christian Doctrine, Scripture is the vehicle that God provides for us to travel to our true home along the road established by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the light of such an account of the end of the Christian life, and in the light of this account of Scripture and its place in God's ongoing drama of salvation, I can begin to offer an account of theological interpretation. That is, theological interpretation of Scripture will involve those habits, dispositions, and practices that Christians bring to their varied engagements with Scripture so that they can interpret, debate, and embody scripture in ways that will enhance their journey toward their proper end in God. I'll say that again. Theological interpretation of scripture will involve those habits, dispositions, and practices that Christians bring to their varied engagements with scripture so that they can interpret, debate, and embody scripture in ways that will enhance their journey toward their proper end in God. No doubt, there is much here that requires unpacking and I have a limited amount of time. In that time I'd like to speak schematically and maybe even a bit superficially in order to throw out a large number of issues. Almost everything I advocate here will require further specification and qualification but it will also provide something concrete for further thought. First, If Christians are to interpret scripture in ways that enhance rather than frustrate our growth into ever deeper friendship with God and neighbor, we'll need to rethink issues of textual meaning. Those of you who follow debates in philosophical and literary hermeneutics will be familiar with arguments over textual meaning. On the one hand, there are those who argue that a text has only one meaning. Such folks fear that if texts don't have one meaning, then meaning becomes whatever we might want and there'll be interpretive anarchy. Others hold that the very nature of writing is such as to render meaning indeterminate. Now I have views about these arguments and reading about them and engaging with them can help us clarify our own views. So I wanna encourage you to pay attention to them. Nevertheless, it is essential to recall that Christians engage scripture with a specific set of ends and purposes that ultimately need to regulate rather than be regulated by theories of textual meaning. To State matters over simply. Theology should regulate hermeneutics rather than the other way around. Let me try and give you a few concrete examples of why this is so. First, uh, in Advent, we, and I suspect you all, read Isaiah 714 liturgically. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, the reason Christians for millennia have read this passage in Advent is because we take it to be a reference to the birth of Christ. At the same time, if you read a bit further in Isaiah, it's pretty clear the son spoken of here is the one born to Isaiah in chapter 8. Christians want to affirm that both of these are legitimate, literal senses of this text. The Christological is neither figurative nor parasitic on nor derivative from the historical. It's important then that the Christological be allowed to stand with its own integrity and not be dependent upon the historical there. Think also of a text like John 1.1 or Philippians 2.6-11. These are famous New Testament texts about Jesus. Christians will want to affirm that these texts firmly place Jesus within the identity of the one God of Israel without either compromising God's singularity or making the Son a created being. That is, Christians will want to read these texts in the light of Nicene dogma. At the same time, Christians don't want to be in a position of having to make the historically implausible argument that John and Paul had fully developed doctrines of the Trinity in mind when they wrote these verses. Finally, Look at any significant biblical text, almost any one at least, um, such as Isaiah 11.1. A branch will come out of the stump of Jesse. And the comments offered on that text by any number of godly interpreters from the past, you'll find Origen, Chrysostom, Gregory the Great, and even Martin Luther, all interpret the text in hopes of directing Christians to ever deeper love of God and neighbor. That is, they all interpret the text with the aims typical of theological interpretation as I have described it. Nevertheless, they'll all say something different about this text's meaning. If there's only one meaning to a text, then several, if not all of these saintly interpreters are wrong. We may want to judge that some of these saints were wrong in their interpretations, but we don't want a theory of meaning that requires us at the outset to claim that most, if not all of them, were wrong. Alternatively, if there is an unlimited set of meanings to a text, then we have no way of arguing that Luther's reading is superior to, say, the reading of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. All of these examples lead me to claim that with regard to textual meaning, Christian theological interpreters want to affirm that the same text can have several, but not an unlimited set of meanings. This is not because scripture has a magical set of properties, but because God is the ultimate author of scripture. And as such, God is able to intend a variety of meanings in the same passage. Now, while that view may be new to you, it is certainly not novel. Augustine and Aquinas both articulated this view. And, I think as these examples have tried to point out, something like this view is theologically essential. Of course, the next obvious question, I can see it coming right away, is if a passage might have several but not unlimited set of meanings, how might theological interpreters discern acceptable from unacceptable readings? Anyone who's been part of a parish Bible study has wondered this too. I want to, and let's make this more complicated or more complex. At the same time the history of the church is filled with occasions when Christians have interpreted scripture in ways that underwrote some of our most sinful practices. I'm thinking in particular here of uh, relying on scripture to justify the kidnapping and enslaving of Africans in this country, a story in which my own tradition was too often on the wrong side, or of the ways in which scripture was used by the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa to buttress apartheid. Those examples sharpen this question, can we read scripture in ways that will help us resist our tendencies to use scripture to underwrite our own sin? Well, my time is really running short now, so I'm going to note several things, but note them quickly. First, the so-called rule of faith, articulated, I think, most persuasively by Irenaeus and later instantiated in the creeds, provides a framework within which a limited variety of interpretations may flourish. The rule of faith regulates without predetermining scriptural interpretation. Secondly, theological interpretation is not primarily the work of individuals, at least not isolated individuals. The practice of theological interpretation is at its core activity of christian communities we are called into such communities by the triune god to whom scriptural texts bear witness hence christian communities provide the contexts whereby we learn as the body of christ through the power of the spirit to interpret and embody scripture in ways that enhance rather than frustrate our communion with others and with god Instead of relying on ever more sophisticated hermeneutical theories, Christian communities need to provide an alternative regulative structure that will combat our manifest tendencies to interpret Scripture in ways that lead us into sin. There's two, there are two central components to this regulative structure. The first concerns the role of the body of Christ in admonishing and correcting one another. Of course, Paul repeatedly displays this in his epistles, admonishing and correcting communities with whom he is deeply connected. Moreover, Paul expects these communities to do this corrective work themselves. In the case of the Corinthians, for example, it's sometimes hard to discern whether Paul is more frustrated by the various escapades of the believers in Corinth or by their manifest inability to be self-aware and self-correcting if believers are to admonish and correct one another without tearing each other apart, they'll need to have a number of conversational habits well established. They'll need large measures of openness and accountability to each other as well. And they will need to be able to argue, disagree, and discuss with each other without tearing the body of Christ apart. Our record here is not good. I want to say a few things about this, however, and I'll say more about them in my uh, sectional paper. First, at least from the time God first utters the commandments, Jews and later Christians have been invited to inhabit and even embody Scripture in the various contexts in which they live. Scripture by its very nature requires interpretation, and interpretation will invite discussion and even disagreement. My point is this, the fact that Christians might disagree with each other over scripture is not a problem. It's built into the very fabric of having scripture. Um, Jews actually are much better at this than we are as a group. The key of course, is how we go about disagreeing with each other. In this respect, we don't need a more sophisticated hermeneutical theory, rather we need to revive our love for the body of Christ. I'll say more about this again later in uh, my sectional paper. Practices of forgiveness and reconciliation provide the second crucial component that Christian communities rely on to regulate our tendency to interpret Scripture in ways that lead us into sin. There are simply no guarantees with or without a hermeneutical method that Christians can counter their tendencies to interpret Scripture in ways that underwrite or lead to sin. For believers, however, their sin need not be the last word on any matter. The community comprised of Jesus' followers is formed through the direct instruction of Jesus through their prayer and through their worship to forgive just as God has forgiven them. Moreover, they seek to bear witness through word and deed to the God who is reconciling all things in Christ. Now. Although more needs to be said about these communal practices, I hope I've said enough to indicate that the ecclesial contexts in which theological interpretation of scripture finds its proper home can provide resources for dealing both with sinful and failed interpretation and with a regulated diversity of interpretations that might arise in any given context. Now just a few comments in closing. I've laid out here, often too briefly, central components for reinvigorating the practice of theological interpretation of scripture in the context of Christian communities. Let me recapitulate them briefly. First, our theological thinking about scripture needs to keep its views on revelation closely dependent upon doctrines about the triune God. In the light of the triune God's desire to draw us into ever deeper communion with God and each other. Christians are called to interpret, discuss, debate, and embody scripture in ways that will enhance their prospects of deepening their communion with God and neighbor. This is a brief summary of the ends and nature of theological interpretation. Secondly, then, given that theological interpretation is directed toward enhancing our love of God and neighbor, it's crucial that theological concerns regulate our hermeneutics rather than the other way around. Finally, if we keep theological concerns primary, it will become clear that practices relating to our life together in the body of Christ, as opposed to more sophisticated methods of exegesis, will play a significant role in our prospects for interpreting Scripture theologically. Apart from attending to these practices, we cannot hope to interpret Scripture in ways that will enhance our life with God and each other. Now. I've not said much about the role of historical biblical criticism in this and I don't have much time left. I'm quite happy to practice as a professional biblical critic relying on a host of critical practices. I understand however that for theological interpretation this work will be useful on an ad hoc basis. This is where the topos that Origen first drew to to Christian's attention, this idea coming from Exodus of plundering the Egyptians comes into play. This is where, in Origen's context, he took the best that pagan philosophy had to offer and turned it to God's purposes, always keeping in mind that God's purposes, rather than Plato's purposes, needed to... Let me say that. And that God's purpose is needed to regulate Plato's purposes rather than the other way around. Well, Christian, uh, sorry, that theological interpreters will want to make use of prof- the work of professional biblical scholars. You have some fabulous faculty here who do work in that vein, and that work will be essential, maybe not essential, will be beneficial to the work of theological interpretation. Um, Because not all of it will be relevant. Some of it will be very important to do, but not relevant for theological interpretation. So you need to make use of it on an ad hoc basis. Of course the work of Jewish interpreters will be useful in the same ad hoc way. The work of non-believing biblical scholars will be useful in exactly the same sort of way, needing, you know, keeping in mind that both those interpreters interpret with a different set of ends and purposes than Christians bring. But their work can be astonishingly useful for theological interpreters as long as they keep their theological concerns primary. And, of course, that is the real trick because... Not all of you will be called to be professional biblical scholars, but some of you may be. And you will realize in the course of getting a PhD and entering the profession, that the profession is really good at forming its practitioners. For the most part, professional biblical scholarship does a much better job of forming professional biblical scholars than Christians do of forming other Christians. And despite your best intentions and purposes, it's easy to be formed by the people who do it better than by the people who do it worse. So it's really important to keep that in mind if you are one of the few um, called to the peculiar post of professional biblical scholar. But that would lead to my final remark. My experience in churches around the country leads me to suggest that rather than trying to inculcate the very peculiar virtues of the biblical scholar in their congregations, pastors and congregations will be better served by trying to revive and engaging in much more traditional though no less demanding forms of Christian formation in order to interpret scripture theologically. Thank you.